Hi, everybody. Hey, everybody. Hope y'all are doing great today on this sunny day, the last mild day for a while. Yes. Right? That's what they're saying. So, anyway, guess what I just discovered? What? That my phone has been on airplane mode since class yesterday. I'm not sure what I've missed, actually. Gosh. <laughs> but you know what? I didn't really miss it at all. <laughs> Were you wondering why it never rang? Or oh no, no, that's no. oh, that's always it's it's always a wonderful thing when my phone does not <laughs> ring. <laughs> I just because usually put on airplane mode before class because that's the surest way to keep from getting interrupted. Yes. But now I forgot. Yeah, that does mean you have to remember to take it off airplane you, mode. It does. Which it I does. failed to do. But today, you know what? I better remember today. I bet you do too because you want to know any notifications or anything what's happening. You no, yeah. you, you still get those. Oh. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been getting those like that. airplane mode. <laughs> what the heck? Why not? Well, you were back here getting ready. I had the TV on uh, with the news channel on and all of a sudden I completely lost cable and I thought, they're doing a test run. They're pretending that, you know, something. Yeah, and we get our internet through, our through cable the cable system. Company. So if we disappear today, well, that will be how far we got in class today. That's and then right. we will see everybody right. next week. We'll be back it's, for it, John. It, it was back right now. but it, it, TV's back that quick? Yep, yep. Came huh. back. Came Weird. Back. It's gone about 30 minutes. Weird. So anyway, well, we hope you all are having a wonderful day. Uh -huh. It's going to be 65 today. Yes. It's going to be like, what, 14 on... <laughs> It's only tomorrow. it's only fifty four tomorrow, so <laughs> and then it goes down. And then it goes there. down lower. So. so I'm just hoping we don't lose electricity. Oh my, I don't need that. Nope. I think what I'm gonna do is everything like all the Friday stuff I send out, it's going out tomorrow afternoon. I'm just gonna get it all done. Everything that has to get done for the weekend, I will finish up and get done tomorrow. And today and tomorrow so that I can get it all out. So Just in case. <laughs> just in case. Does that sound like a good idea? It does. Yeah. Yes. What are you going to do to get ready? I'm going to throw a pot roast in early tomorrow oh, morning. Oh, that's that a good thing. <laughs> in a slow cooker. Yeah, those pot roasts are yummy. Yeah. Yep. Okay, Alrighty. well, enough of this fun. Banter. We wish we could hear y'all's banter. We would that's love right. that. Like We have like open mic or something on all out there. So. Very good. Don't let them know that we can. Oh, okay. <laughs> this you better, new, you better, this new technology. You better pray us into this. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are here again on Tuesday to resume our journey through the Gospel of John. And we pray, really as we do every week, that your Holy Spirit would open up these pages for us. Because we do hear them quite often um, if we're a regular sort of churchgoer, have been in other Bible studies and stuff. But really, help us to to take it a level deeper, to hear Jesus as we have not heard him before. Um, for we know that in that we can, we can um, come to know Jesus better and, and become truer disciples of him. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. Okay. Very good. Well, honey, you got like 18 boxes of readers over here. Yeah, I've got... they all look the same. <laughs> they do all look the same. I don't know. I, I tried to get them looking differently. I buy them cheap on Amazon, but I've been having some vision stuff lately, trying to find the right place. I don't know. I've been driving myself crazy. I guess I, I have this a part of me that's a little bit, can be a little bit obsessive or something. 
No. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm told. Yes. So, anyway, okay. Here's where we are. We're in the 12th chapter of John. Um, we, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. If there's one thing to take away from that and across all four Gospels is that he rides into Jerusalem as Messiah. As, in essence, the king of Israel. Because the kings were anointed. Messiah means the anointed one. He is riding in as God's Messiah. Um, the Christians would later come to realize that he was God all riding into to Jerusalem, returning to Zion. But but that's 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 too much to expect of the crowds because these people are radically monotheistic. So for them, this is the Messiah. This is. They might even go so far as to call him the Son of Man, this great figure from Daniel chapter 7 who is given authority and dominion over God's creation <coughs> after the defeat of all the evil powers and pagan oppressors. So they really, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that Sunday pulling every bit of that, every symbol of that around himself. That's the key to understanding Palm Sunday. So um, then Jesus has been talking with the crowds and he's been, been building on this theme that, well, his hour has come. His hour has come. Mm -hmm. It is time for God to be glorified. Um, and that is all pointing toward the cross. So here's the thing to understand about this. For any first century Jew, any, I can say this, you know, they were a diverse group, religiously. There were, there were a wide variety of beliefs. But for any first century Jew, the idea that the actual Messiah sent from God would be crucified by the Romans was a non-starter. It, it, it could not be. It made no sense because the Messiah was to arrive in victory and power, and kick out that Romans, and cleanse the temple and stuff. So no, no, crucified Messiah was an oxymoron, two words that don't they, don't, they make no sense together. So that's what you have to realize when, when, on the one hand, early in chapter 12, Jesus is riding into the Jerusalem, and he's draping himself in, the, in, in Messiahship. It's like he's got a billboard behind him with arrows pointing at him that says, Messiah, 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 Messiah. And then, a short time later, he's talking about being lifted up, which is a euphemism for being crucified. And that's just, that's just not, it's just not going to make any sense to the crowds. And we should not, I guess, I guess my teaching point here is that we should not expect it to. We should not think that if we were in the crowd that day, if we were one of those first century Jews in their context and their time and their background and their worldview, that we would get it. Nah, I don't think so. No, they don't get it. Really, I'm very sympathetic to them. How could they get it? Much of the world still rejects all that today, right? 2,000 years after the, after the fact. So where I would like to begin... Um, I would like to begin back, we, we got all the way through like verse 30, 
3. But I want to just go back to verse 23 and we'll let us just read into read into it, okay? So, okay. So the member God-fearers, that's a kind of a technical term, for Gentiles slash Greeks, synonyms, who were seeking out Jesus. And, and they found um, Philip and the Philip found Andrew, and they go to Jesus. And here's what he says, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man, Daniel 7, to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, as in it falls to the ground, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And then verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, Jesus says. Of course it is. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. He knows, you see, he knows what his vocation is. You and I are left imagining how he came to understand his vocation, to be the suffering servant of Israel, in, upon whom all of the sin of Israel and the sin of the world would be, would be um, gathered together and concentrated. It, it's a little bit like, remember when we were kids and we'd have, we had magnifying glasses and we'd go around and burn leaves and stuff or maybe an ant, by concentrating the sun's rays and, and making it... This is sort of a, like a dark, mag, a dark magnifying glass, concentrating sin um, and death upon Jesus. He is taking upon himself the sin of the world. It's what John, how John begins his gospel, really. First, first chapter, anyway. When John the baptizer says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does he take it away? Well, he takes it upon himself. You see? It's not just swept away like with some sort of a magic eraser. He takes it upon himself. And so he says, No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify your name, which is means, Father, glorify glorify yourself. This is about God's glory. This is about what God is doing. How so? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's what the world needs to know. That's what the world, that, that all of this is done because God loves the world. He loves you and me. He loves humanity. He wants to have God's to be in a right relationship with these human creatures who are so rebellious and unfaithful. That's what he wants. It is like the great parable of the prodigal son is so wonderful in that way. How the prodigal son insults the father, goes away, ruins himself, and when he comes dragging himself back, the father runs down the driveway and just picks him up in his arms and throws him around in the air. It's just so excited that they are reconciled, regardless of what had happened in the past. They're going to start anew, and, God, and the father's going to put on a big barbecue and have a big party and invite everybody over. 
Well, that's this, you see. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. People will see who God is. Remember, glory is a social term. To glorify someone is to enable everyone to see that they are who they are, that they are who they say they are. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Well, the crowd, verse 29, the crowd that was there and heard it said, and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. That's like when he prays outside the tomb of Lazarus, right? When he says, I'm praying now, and but God, I'm just doing this aloud so that everybody around me can hear what's going on, right? This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. And the prince of this world will be driven out. Okay, I've used, I didn't bring the slide today again. Maybe I should have. The already not yet slide. But what Jesus is saying, what his arrival as the Messiah is saying, what Palm Sunday is saying, is that God's big day is arriving in Jesus. That's what it's saying. That God is stepping in to time and space and human history to save humanity. To rescue us. And to put in motion the whole rescue of the creation. And part of that is judgment. It has to be. It has to be. It's just all wrapped up in one package. If, if judgment isn't part of it, it's as if God was saying, Oh well, yes, yes, all those wrongs, all those injustices... Pick some small ones that are meaningful for you. Pick murdered people. Pick the Holocaust. Pick whatever you want. Pick, pick bushels full. There's no shortage, right? As if all those don't didn't really matter. They could all just be like a, a raced away. Well, that's nice. Hmm. No, that's not right. That's not just. So, of course, judgment has come on this world. And now the prince of this world will be driven out. That the prince of this world is a way of speaking of the devil because a way of speaking for a Jew in the first century of the present age, the age of sin and death, the age in which they lived and were waiting for God to do God's big thing was the age of Satan. Okay? Now verse 32. And Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth... This is where the crowd would start getting immensely confused because that's a euphemism for crucifixion. Will draw all people to myself. What sits at the front of all churches today that should, uh, that should call themselves churches? A cross. A cross. Right? It's all cleaned up and everything, which, which probably is not doing Jesus full full service. It's like, you know, we have a big, it's saying have a big, beautiful cross hanging up over the sanctuary, but the cross was a method of execution. I think in a few sermons, back in the days when I preached every Sunday, I would, um, 
look above my head and said and, and say what should be hanging there is an electric chair. Then you might then we might be able to get it. Right? The 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 scandal and impossibility that God's grace and love is revealed in that cross. So he says in verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And so you can just imagine the heads are swimming. What? All of a sudden, they've gone from Palm Sunday to talking about crucifixion, execution, death. So the crowd spoke up. Of course they did. And they say, we have heard from the law, that would be the Hebrew scrolls, that the Messiah will remain forever. That's very Daniel 7. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up, the Son of Man must be crucified? Who is this Son of Man? And you can just imagine the murmuring, the confusion. It makes no sense to them. That's what, you ha that's what we have to get. It makes no sense to even hint at a crucified Messiah. If somebody was lifted up as Messiah, if put forward as Messiah by his followers, and it happened before and after Jesus, if, 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 if a fellow was put, up as, put forward as Messiah and then executed by the Romans, crucified maybe, head cut off maybe, all it meant was they weren't Messiah because Messiah was not supposed to meet a bad end. What kind of big day is that? If this is God's big day, the last days, the end of days, the arrival of the kingdom of God, the sweeping away of sin and death and the arrival of resurrection and the Holy Spirit, what kind of Messiah would end up getting executed? They, it just doesn't compute. Didn't compute, we shouldn't expect it to. And you know what? Just one of the more, more, if Jesus had not been resurrected, he would have been marked down as another well-meaning but failed Messiah. You understand that, right? If Jesus had not been resurrected, he would just he'd be he'd be in he maybe he'd be in the history books that nobody read. You know, Judas the Galileans in the history books that nobody reads. But that's all he would be in. So, they're wondering, who is this son of man? Who, what do you mean he's going to be lifted up? And then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. The light again. So, if we look back at chapter 8, just, you know, not that far before in the scheme of the rolling out of events here, Jesus calls himself what? He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So I know sometimes when I come to John's gospel and I reach these kind of questions in verse 34, I wish, there's this big part of me that wishes Jesus just said, yeah, 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 it's me, it's me, it's me. Get used to it, it's me. Maybe that's just too direct. I don't know. Sometimes that sort of directness is more directness than people can handle. And I don't know that it would have done any good anyway because people just would have walked away saying this guy is mad. 
Mad as a hatter, we used to say. You know what we, you know the the phrase mad as a hatter came from? The chemicals that were used to make felt hats like top hats and those things were so horrific they the chemi uh, 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 years of exposure to them would turn people crazy. So anyway, just an interesting little aside. So Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Dot, dot, dot. I am the light of the world. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark that does not know where they're going. Believe in the light. Trust the light. <laughs> Trust the light. While you have the light. So that you may become children of light. You see, one of the remarkable things about, uh, about Jesus is that he says, I am the light of the world. And then what does he say to the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount? You are the light of the world. I'm the light of the world, he says. You are the light of the world, he says. To become the children of light is to become the light of the world. Jesus' light shines through his family. His brothers, his adopted brothers and sisters, which make up the body of Christ. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. Well, my crowd would have found all that very, I think, unsatisfying. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. You know, he's already been accosted. They've already tried to stone him once. Remember in chapter 10 when they were picking up stones and one fellow screams out, you're making yourself out to be God. So it's, it's a dangerous time for Jesus. And he... He doesn't, he doesn't have to do this, right? I mean, you, he could escape and head somewhere. But that would not mean he wouldn't be true to his vocation. He would be faithless rather than faithful. So, any thoughts or questions about all of that? None are coming up yet, Scott. None are coming up, huh? Yep. How about you, Patty? Nothing? I'm not. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to force you to. I'm. I'm ready to go into thirteen. Just. Just. No, I'm good. You're good. good. Okay. So we are now going to come upon. Well, it's John's Last Supper story without much of a supper, because in John there is no in John's Gospel there is no. This is my body. This is my blood. Instead, it's focused on on Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And when we come to whether it's John's story or the other, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke's story, which are, they're not inconsistent. One can certainly do both. John is bringing this aspect out. In part, perhaps, because he is the last writing. And so he's bringing out what other people didn't. So let me show you a picture of how they dined. And... Um, we know that especially at holidays, Jews dined in, in a very Greco-Roman fashion. They might not in their everyday lives, but it's kind of like the way we do Thanksgiving dinner. 
right? It's, it's more formal. It's often. When I was a kid, it was always formal. And things would be a little different. And, and you'd use the dining room, which largely sits unused for much of the year, right? And so they would... All the images you have of how they... of Almost all, like the Last Supper, sweep it away. <laughs> it's a magnificent painting... And it's full of, I guess, I guess mystery. People could say it is. I don't know. Full of mystery. But it's totally not the way things would have been set up. Here is something that is much closer to the way things were set up. Now, where did it happen? It's happening somewhere inside the city walls because that's where the meal was to be taken. If you look in the lower left-hand corner... You'll see a thing, same thing that says upper room traditional. Um, that is unlikely to be the spot. We really don't know. Um, the Crusaders came there a thousand years after the fact and, and built a little church there, but and it's remembered as the place of the upper room, but we don't really know where it's happening. Um, I've always thought it was unlikely to be there because that side of town is where the uh, wealthier folks were found. But in any event, it's somewhere inside the city walls. And the, the table would have been set up something like, something like this. So this is the best illustration I could find. Okay. So it's not like this because this is big. Um, it's, it's too square. Um, and it's, to Greco-Roman, but still the idea that you have a three-sided table that is U-shaped. And it would have, um, on the inside, tables set up for the food. There would be room for the servants to come in and bring food to set down on the tables. And arrayed around the tables would be low benches, on which there would be pillows so that the people at the dinner could recline. It looks so uncomfortable. That's what I always agree I with just, you. You know, you <laughs> feel like your food would just kind of go down so far and kind of get stuck. I don't know. It just, Gosh. It really does look so uncomfortable. Decades ago, I read an article about what an engineering miracle the, the invention of the chair was. And how all civilizations did not invent, did not find the, did not create the chair. You know, it, it, surprisingly. Um, but here, I think they could have used chairs. I think it would like, but that's not how they did it. So people, people would lay, and they would lay on low benches, which means what? Their feet would be hanging out there. And when they gathered, the typical practice would be for, um, servants to come in and to wash people's feet because they wore sandals and it was dusty and I imagine people's feet were pretty grody to use a technical term pretty grody most of the time. So that's a very quick question here. Um, 
I know you were repeating some of the things we did last week in John 12. Have we just, we've skipped the, the ending of John 12 and gone right to I 13? I am sorry. Did I miss something at the end of John 12? Well, we stopped at uh, 36, and so the next verse would have been John 12, 37. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> thank you. What did I do there? How did I do that? I don't know. I thought that, well, maybe you were... Oh, no. Okay, well, well just take everything I'm saying about dining and hold it in your head. <laughs> Good catch, Susan. Good catch, Patty. Thank you for that very much, very much. I guess it was an iPad mistake, and I was just all excited about my diagram here. So, no, we don't ever mean to skip anything. Never. So I'm putting that away. Thank you. So, back to John chapter 12. <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> I better roll up my sleeves. Okay. Verse 36. <laughs> Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. They wouldn't put their trust in him. Which, tell, which is something that Jesus knew. When you read through the Gospels, it's clear Jesus understands that these miracles he does, they're not, they're not sufficient. More than a few times he says, look, I could be dead and raised in three days and they still wouldn't believe. Lots of people today ask me, why does a God do something big that would be a, a sign to the truth of the gospel that people couldn't possibly miss? And the experience in the first century is that no, that, that, isn't, that, isn't, really, that isn't really how it works. We can we can ex we can turn away from anything. We can explain away anything. So thus, it's no surprise we, in verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him, believe in him. Now we come to the hard part. Maybe I subconsciously skipped this because this is so challenging. This is from Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is called by God to Isaiah's mission. Would you think what would happen, you think that story would happen at the beginning of the scroll of Isaiah, but it doesn't. It happens in chapter 6 of the scroll of Isaiah. So, um, Isaiah's, you know, God asks, who can I send? And Isaiah says, well, send to me. And, and then God, like, prepares him for what lies ahead. And it's this, verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So I don't know of any place in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 6, John chapter 12, a few other places where these words are quoted, 
that are more challenging for us in terms of how free we are, God's sovereignty, free will, determinism, and I think that commentators who note that sort of the theology you bring to this section is sort of revealed by how you interpret it. Okay. So, I have a few thoughts on this for you. Is there in Scripture an understanding that there may be times when God withholds his grace. Remember, we Methodists believe in we, a name that we give to part of what grace does is prevenient grace. It is the grace, you know, that enables us to even think about, to approach God in any way whatsoever. And so if God were to redeem that, were, were, were to withhold that grace for a while, we might see that as God having hardened somebody's heart. Why might God do that? God might do that perhaps so that they could see what they have lost and repent. It's a, maybe it's a little bit like in Corinthians when there's a, there's a fella in the church in Corinth that is a big problem and Paul basically says, you've got to, you, you just got to tell him to go. So he is moved outside the community, sure enough. And later in 2 Corinthians, it seems as if Paul is talking about the same person, saying it's time that he comes back in. So invite him back in. So maybe it's something like that. Um, another commentator on this I thought had a good, good idea. That when people are presented with the gospel... They have to make a choice. Their hearts can't really be hardened against something that they haven't heard, right? right. So when they hear the gospel, they have a ch they can hear it with a willing heart or they can turn away. And thus it is the presentation of the gospel, the message that Isaiah is going to carry out there that when he carries it out to people, their hearts will either be hardened by hearing the message or not because it's going to force them into either accepting what Isaiah is saying to them or rejecting what Isaiah is saying to them. So I find that kind of attractive because certainly if you take this passage in the context of the rest of Scripture, you can't come out of it concluding that we're just robots, right? I, I, there is no reason, there has to be a reason if God withdraws his grace from someone, or there has to be a reason why somebody's heart is hardened. And it may be as simple as that one commentator suggests that it is, in Isaiah, God is telling Isaiah, look, you're going to go out, you're going to carry this message. What's going to happen is they're going to, they're going to turn away. 
They're not going to listen. They're not going to understand. Their hearts are going to be hardened by the presentation of the message. And if they didn't, I would heal them. But anyway, I'm just telling you, it is, it is a challenging passage every time it pops up. You know, um, when, I, when I hear that, uh, right away I think of there's a number of times in Exodus when Moses goes and tells Pharaoh to let his people go. Right. And it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Right. Would that be kind of the same? Kind of the same. And what's interesting about that in Exodus is sometimes it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of think there's a lot to be said for the pro that particularly because this comes from God speaking to Isaiah, who's been called now in chapter 6 of Isaiah to this life of carrying God's message out, that the presentation of that message itself is going to harden hearts. Thus, in a way, God is, because God is the one who's given Isaiah that message. If, if Isaiah hadn't gone out with the message, everybody just would have gone along, you know, happy days, happy days. I guess then the same thing happened to Moses. Same thing Moses happened to Moses. The, right. The charge of... Pharaoh's all happy yes. days, happy days, until Moses shows up and says, let God, God says, let my people go. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that message, you can see it. You can, in, in Exodus, you can see in time after time, Pharaoh's heart getting harder and harder and harder. Yes. But it's only because... Really, in that moment, in that context, he's being presented with a choice. So I, like I said, people, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's been so much ink spelt, 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 spelt <laughs> on this portion of Isaiah 6. Here in John 12, other, other place it crops up. Paul uses it. I mean, it's just like, wow, what does it mean? And so you really, you really come to it with, an understanding of who God is, and you can't help but do that, and that then shapes how you read it. So there you go. Now, in verse 41, when I it says Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him, does that mean he like really saw Jesus? No. Isaiah sees a time, that's what the whole scroll's about, a time when God is going to put everything right. Right? The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is Jesus. So so when when Isaiah looks ahead in in what God is calling him to do in the rescue that God is promising, he is seeing Jesus's glory because Jesus is the embodiment of that rescue. It's how you know, I'm going to start Isaiah next Monday at three o'clock. And it's how Isaiah was, um, I mentioned it yesterday, that this, this great scholar, Brevard Charles, wrote a book called, you know, I was basically, you know, struggling to read Isaiah as Christian scripture, going back through 2,000 years of the church greats, the great theologians struggling to, to, to understand Isaiah and to rightly see Jesus in the pages of Isaiah because Jesus is the 
Jesus is the rescue, is the salvation that Isaiah foresees. All right. So, anybody have comments on that that I might not be able to be helpful with? <laughs> it's one of those passages. I mean, really, it just calls for a lot of humility. You know, I don't know what everybody's study Bible says and stuff, but it's like I said, study Bibles see are all all the notes at the at the bottom to interpreting the Bible and the study Bible are written by people who have their own theology that they bring that they bring to their understanding of, of scripture and that's why you have to allow interplay between your theology and scripture and allow scripture to shape your theology and you just nobody comes to the bible with a blank slate it's not possible we don't bring a blank slate to anything we have minds okay all right enough verse 42 yet at the same time many even among the leaders right, of Israel, of the Jews, trusted in Jesus. They believed in Jesus. So it isn't, you know, he isn't universally um, ignored, universally disbelieved. But, verse 42, but, but, big but, because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge the faith for fear that would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Go back a few chapters, we get this long story about the blind man, right? And even his parents are brought in and, and they're interrogated about their blind son who had been blind from birth, who Jesus had healed. And they're reluctant to help. They're reluctant to defend their son or to defend Jesus because they don't want to be put out of the synagogue. It's the center of their life. What sort of life could they have if they couldn't go to synagogue? And um, John here acknowledges our need, our love of human praise more than praise from God. The same question would, would confront Christians in the first few centuries of the Christian community when persecutions would arise and Christians would be offered the opportunity to renounce Christ or be punished, sometimes by death. And many renounced Christ. And the church community had to decide what to do with them later. And the church community decided wisely to bring them back in, that we humans are weak. We just are. It's easy for us to be fearful and anxious. Okay? So, there are some who hear Jesus, but they're afraid to speak up about it because of the, um, well, being put out of the synagogue. I'm thinking just a few days later, though, like Joseph of Arimathea forgets about that fear. He does. And, um... Is Nicodemus also a Pharisee? He's, um, he's a Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Joseph is not. Not that we know about. Okay. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He, Nicodemus is a Pharisee we met in chapter 3 who comes to Jesus in the night to right. ask him some stuff. Then remember in like chapter 7, Nicodemus defended Jesus. 
in front of his fellow Pharisees. You know, we're we're running ahead of ourselves here, right? right? But he helps Joseph. He does. Right? He does. Move he will body. help Joseph. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, there's this. Um, there's probably others too, right? That just aren't mentioned. There's a thread across all of Scripture that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how unfaithful God's people are, there will always be a faithful remnant. Even if it comes down to a faithful remnant of only one, Jesus. But this story is really, I think, in that. That yes, Jesus is going to be largely rejected, but he's not rejected by everybody. There will be a remnant of people who do embrace Jesus and do understand as best they can what is happening. Okay, so we find out that in verses 42 to 43 that there are some who embrace Jesus. They're just afraid to say anything about it. Verse 44, Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. Jesus and the Father are like this, right? Jesus is standing in front of them. He's basically saying to them, you radically monotheistic Jews, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but also the one who sent me, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Oh, man. I'm, I, I just can't even imagine the... The bewilderment, anger among some, just, what? I imagine they didn't believe what they heard. How about that? The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. When we started this journey through John's gospel, I said, look, much of what John does is contrast the light and the darkness. You're in the darkness. <laughs> You're in the darkness now, and you're in the darkness until you come into the light. You're not sort of somewhere in the middle trying to just kind of choose between the darkness and the light. No, you're in the darkness until you come into the light, and that light is Jesus. That's, that's one of John's big theological themes. I have come into the world as a light, Jesus says, so that no one who trusts in me, but their faith in me, believes in me, should stay in darkness. Don't stay there. There's light now. Come to the light. <laughs> Verse 47, Jesus goes on. If anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world which echoes John 3.17, the verse right after John 3.16. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. Who is that judge, you might ask? The second half of the sentence tells you, the very words I have spoken will condemn them at that last day. So the idea being that those who reject Jesus even though the light of Christ is in the world, those who reject Jesus condemn themselves. They condemn themselves by the very words of Christ. 
um, I think for Christians would say for the very for the very words of Scripture they condemned themselves. It's it's like a moment we had yesterday when we were doing finishing up Titus. When Ti when Titus when when Paul says to Titus the opponents he's talking about they're warped they're sinful and they are self-condemned. Self-condemned. You know? The question is not, we don't, we don't really need a judge to tell us how good a life we have led or not. Not when it comes to the matter of salvation. When it comes to the matter of who inherits eternal life, it's a simple matter of who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. And if one rejects Jesus, one is self-condemned. That's what he's saying to them. I'm here right in front of you. I've been talking to you a lot. <laughs> right? There's the judge for the one who rejects me does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. They will be self-condemned. Self-condemned. It's like the old adage from C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. Those who reject, those, those who will not enjoy eternity with God have placed themselves in that group. They didn't need somebody to put them there. They have placed themselves there. I think it's a pretty mature way to understand things. Verse 49. Jesus goes on. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded, to, commanded me to say all that I have spoken. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. So Jesus and the Father are like this. They share a will. They share a purpose. What, Je what Jesus tells them is what the Father told him to tell them. They are like this. Of course they are, because Jesus is the second person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They don't get that. It would take Christians a while to really begin to work that out as they reflected and remembered Jesus and reflected and remembered Pentecost and the rest of it. But yes, of course. Of course he says, you know, when you, when you see me, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Verse 45. The Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. Verse 49. Well, of course, of course. In light of the Trinity, we get that. But they wouldn't get that. He, verse 50 says, I know that his command leads to eternal life. Right? Of course, that's the point. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Just like earlier, earlier on when Jesus, earlier in the gospel when Jesus says, "I and the Father are one." I do what the Father does, and 
when they reject Jesus, they reject, they're rejecting the Father. They're rejecting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which will be Paul's point going forward. If you were to scoot forward in time to when, to when Paul, who is a Pharisee himself, is, is, is trying to understand what has happened, what happened in Jesus. He, he does not view himself as having left Judaism to become a Christian. That's not words that make any sense to him. He died a Jew who accepted the Messiah, the, which is the Jewish idea completely, who, the Messiah sent by God. It is his fellow Jews who rejected Jesus who left the farm, as it were. Because by rejecting Jesus, they have rejected the Father. They don't understand that, I'll grant you. But by rejecting Jesus, they have rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. Hey, now you get to be into your... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so any thoughts about all of that? You know, I, I think it's... There's a, lot of, there's a lot of culmination happening in these words. A lot of bringing things together. Jesus is the light. Yes. He and the Father are one. And the way, the way to eternal life offered by the Father is through the Son. There just can't be any other way. It's illogical to think that there could be another way if Jesus is really who he claims to be. And if you doubt that he claims that, just go back to chapter 10 where that man shakes his fist at Jesus and says, you are, you are making yourself out to be God. They understood it. They understood what Jesus was saying. They understood what Jesus was doing. John begins his gospel in that way. He makes it crystal clear for the reader. And one immediate consequence of that is that it will be no surprise that Jesus ends up crucified. Okay. Hey, Patty. Yes. Would you like a cup of coffee? Is that what you're going to ask me? No. Oh. I'm, I'm <laughs> suggesting maybe we move on to chapter 13. Oh, yeah. What do you think? Absolutely. We've already had the pictures of the book. Yeah, all right. So just get in your mind the right kind of picture. It's a, it's a U-shaped table. There are three people at the head of the table. The others are arrayed down, long tables on each side. They're, on, they're reclining on their side. And the practice would be that servants would come through and wash their feet. Just as this big kind of, you know, this is a big sort of formal, formal meal. Do we really get all that kind of detail in the Gospels? No, we don't. So we're just kind of going by what we can ascertain about their practices. So... Here we go, chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's such a personal sentence, isn't it? Yes. This is written by somebody who knew Jesus and experience Jesus' love. 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, it's this 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 kind of thing is written a bit ambiguously across the Gospels. And I am certainly not with those who think that Judas is just a robot forced by the devil to betray Jesus. I very much believe that it is as John writes it here that he prompted Judas. That's the that's the that's that's the way to see it. It is like in the movie The Young Messiah when the in that movie, the when Jesus, it's a movie about when Jesus was eight, okay. And in that movie, the devil is dressed in black, with a little bit of white, and looks a little bit like Robert Downey Jr. Anyway, he whispers in people's ears, he whispers in Jesus's ears, he whispers in other people's ears, right? So here, which is resistible, right? When Jesus is tested in the wilderness, he resists the devil's tests. Temptations, if you want to use that word. Here, Judas Iscariot could. He's not a robot. He's he's a man. He, he is going to be offered a choice. And he's going to make a terrible choice. So the devil had already prompted Jesus. Judas whispered in his ear to betray Jesus. Just, just telling us what is coming? Verse 3. Now Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Interesting introduction to that, isn't it? John is lifting up for us that Jesus understands fully well what his vocation is. his unique vocation, who he is, exactly what he, how far we processes all that inside a human brain sitting inside a cranium, I don't know. I don't think we can know. But he knew the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, which would be this big, you know, cloak-like thing and wrap the towel around his waist. So you, they would have a couple layers of clothing that have the big cloak. Underneath they might have a, tone, a tunic, some kind of clothing around their midsection. But he gets up and he takes off the outer garment um, and, and took a towel and put it around his waist because it's going to get wet. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So what I want you to notice is, is look, at first, look at the beginning of this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal wrapped the towel around his waist, got a basin because he's going to wash the feet of the disciples. 
why why is he going to watch the defeat of the disciples? Look at the beginning of verse 3. Because he is God, not despite being God. And it's because because this is who God is. This is the essence of God's character being revealed here. That's what John gets here in 13.3. Paul gets it in Philippians chapter 2 in the great Christ hymn. It, it is because he is God that he does these things. It is because he is God that he goes to the cross. Not despite being God. It is because he is God. It is because he is God that he gets up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water in a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet, the work of a slave, the work of a servant. Have you ever participated in a foot-washing ceremony in a church? Have you ever had your feet washed by another Christian in a church setting, in a church service, I can answer yes to that. Um, have you ever done the washing? I'm telling you, in my experience, it is a lot tougher to be the one whose foot is being washed by somebody you know and somebody you care about and who is a friend of yours. Up in, when I used to live a long, long time ago, decades ago, lived in Ohio, went to a small Ohio church up in Stowe. And we got to Holy Week, and the pastor, who was really very much filled with the Holy Spirit, I didn't appreciate it as much at the time as I should, but I did appreciate it some. So Jim, Jim had a service, and on Thursday evening of Holy Week, and he lined up some of us. Some of us came from the choir, some of us did not. And we sat down, and he went from person to person washing our feet. Wow. If you've ever experienced that, you know right off where Peter's going to be coming from. Right off. But Jesus is going to, he gets up, gets himself ready, has the basin, has the towel wrapped around himself, and is going to make his way around this U-shaped table, washing these feet that are dangling off the ends of the benches. They're not sitting in chairs. They're, they're dangling off the end of the benches. He came to Simon Peter in verse 6, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And Peter said, No, you shall never wash my feet. Right? I get that. Peter thinks this is crazy. You know, Arthur and I and the other preachers at St. Andrew often talk about the world being turned upside down. Sunday, Arthur three times referred to the inversion of the world. Here we go. Who in their right minds thinks the creator of the cosmos is going to go around and do a slave's work? A servant's work. Nobody. I mean, right, I mean, who would think the creator of the cosmos would be born to a young girl from a no-account village in a no-account place called Galilee at the outer reaches of the Roman Empire? Nobody. Yet, that is who God is. 
And so right there in this moment, Peter's experiencing the inversion of everything. Because the one who has authority over all, back to verse 3, is going to wash Peter's feet. And this subservient task, that's what it is, it's a subservient task. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Which is a way of saying that you must understand what we're doing. What we're doing here. So Peter says, no. So Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus says, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. He's not even hearing Jesus. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter says, Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And really, Peter still loses the thread of, of it. He, 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 he isn't willing to let it be this subservient task that Jesus is taking on. Just a simple task. Not washing the head, not washing the body, no, just washing the feet. That's the custom. A subservient custom that someone would go around and wash the dinner party's feet. So Jesus answered Peter on another level, really. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. What do you think he's talking about? Those who have had a bath. Those who have come to faith in Christ, right? Those who have been cleansed of their sin. They don't need to wash your feet because your feet's dirty. Your head's clean as it ever is. <laughs> Their whole body is clean. And you are clean. This is The you is plural here. And y'all are clean. Though not every one of you. And when he says that, you realize that Jesus is operating on a, different, on a higher level, right? Because says, he looks around the room, he says, Well, these disciples are all mine. They're with me. They put their faith and trust in me. They're clean. They've repented of their way. They gave up their old ways and now they're with me. Except for one. Except for one. And we realize, ah, you see, the devil had prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And Jesus knows it. Except for one, Jesus says. Verse 11, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Which implies what? That he washed everybody's feet. I guess even Judas's, right? I guess even Judas's. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher? Rabbi, you call me Lord. What a loaded word that is for these 
disciples, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord, your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So, I guess in closing this week, what I would like us to do, maybe as we leave here, is just to reflect on Jesus' example. He calls it an example of, of a willingness to serve, a willingness to do things that we might think in life are below our, what, our station. That are, to do things that are undignified for Christ. A little bit like when David is bringing the Ark of the Jerusalem back, the, the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and he's out in the streets, and he's dancing, and he's singing, and he's half naked, and his wife, at the Michael, his first wife, Michael, who lives in the harem, um, uh, took him to account for it and said, oh, you can't be doing this. You can't be doing this. This is totally, totally wrong for you. The king of Israel. How could you do this? And he says, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be dignified. I'll, I'll be undignified for God. Well, Jesus came to serve, not to be served. We are called to serve, not to be served. So I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll talk a bit more next week about this foot washing Um and this, as we go on with the story of this meal, but, but, but that is that is what John has chosen to lift up in his gospel. That Jesus went from person to person to person, washing, washing their feet. Because, why? Because that's who God is. Verse three. That's who God is. That's who God is. All right. So very good. Wow. It's pretty powerful. Very powerful. And so we're going to end right there. And Miss Patty's going to come back around. Miss Patty. Why do I call you? I know. I, know. Well, this... I don't know. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of the lady in Romper Room? You remember that? Oh, Miss man. what? Miss... See, somebody's probably going to type yes. it here in a second. I still remember all the little songs. You know, you know what I remember the most I, about Romper Room what? was the finger painting. Really, I loved I loved to finger paint when I was a little <laughs> kid. You get in there, it's all messy, and you got stuff all over your hands, and yeah. Anyway, oops, I'm not really sure how they do this. Uh, okay, I was thinking maybe somebody would put her name. Okay, you know, you look outside and it looks like it's, I'm guessing, in the low 60s and beautiful. And it's just really hard to be. believe that yeah, um, tomorrow day. night we may get some really bad weather. And so my prayer is that each one of us will have everything we need at home, that we won't lose power, that we'll stay healthy and safe. And um, that if, you know, we need to look after our neighbors or something because, you know, somebody else is without that we'll do that. Uh, last year, we had both sets of our family, Robbie and Savannah, and Matt and Courtney and our two grandsons move in 
over the big um, February winter freeze out. Yes, yeah, <laughs> we were blessed. We didn't have any. Uh, we didn't have any outages. So let's just pray that that's what happens this time. So if you would join me in prayer, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time again today to study your Word, and we get to hear your Son Jesus Christ proclaim who He was, and who He is. For everybody to hear there was no longer any doubt any question there shouldn't be in in people's minds he was telling them yes you and he were one we pray god that you would watch over this group and hold us close to you lord i do have two people to lift up in extra prayer today we are still praying for sarah who is diana and carl reeves daughter who had to have a double mastectomy yesterday we are praying, Lord, for her healing, and we're praying for Mike Sims and his wife, Candy. Mike is still recovering from a pretty big heart procedure last week. Lord, we know that there are many other people with us today that have just recently gone through surgery or treatments of one kind or another, and we just thank you, God, for your healing, and we pray, God, for continued and, and total healing, Lord. Please be with us, Lord, as we face the rest of this day. Um, we love you, we are very grateful, Lord, and we lift up all these prayers in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, adios, everybody. I'm going to take my phone off airplane hold like oh, right are now. Are you really? <laughs> <laughs> right, bye, Have everybody. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. <laughs>